this week, the book of Philippians. I must be honest with you, as I began to study this book, I, I love Philippians, and it's a book that often we think of joy because it talks about that, but I must tell you that as I have studied, I've been convicted that I fall short. It's a powerful book. It's a wonderful book. It's a book that starts in the book of Acts. If you think back to the early church and Paul and Silas were on their second missionary journey, if you remember, there were they literally had to go through Galatia because the Spirit of God would not allow them to share the gospel. So they kept traveling, going on to Bithynia, which is present-day Turkey. And again, it says that the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to share at that time. And so they headed to the seaport of Troas. And that night, Paul had a vision of a young man in northern Greece in the town of Macedonia crying out, Come help us. They took that from, says to be from the Lord, and, and at once they headed to Philippi. And there they went to a riverside where it was a custom for people to gather to pray. And they saw a group of women, which included a lady named Lydia. Lydia was a seller of purple. She was a businesswoman. As they shared with her God's word in Acts 16 says that God opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. She accepted Christ. And it says that she and her household believed and were baptized. The story of the birth of the church in Philippi is a lesson in God's sovereignty. It's a lesson in God's guiding and directing us in our own lives. You see, it was God who prevented Paul and Silas and team from sharing the gospel in the other places. It was God who gave the vision at Troas. It was God who guided Paul to Philippi. It was God who directed Paul to the riverside where the women were. It was God who opened the heart of Lydia to trust Christ. It was God who later on directed Paul to the Philippian jailer, if you remember, who trusted Christ, he and his family. Since Paul planted this church at Philippi, he didn't go through the same experience sometimes of, of his authority being questioned. Philippians, the book of Philippians was written probably some ten years after he had left Philippi. It's probably Paul's most informal letter. It's a letter, though, that you just see the warmth and the love that Paul has for these saints at Philippi. He even allowed them to send him money. And if you know much about Paul, he didn't, he didn't allow that. Remember, if you will, there are some serious problems going on in other churches. You think of the Corinthians, if you think of Galatians, um, and sometimes Paul had to speak pretty severely, very strongly with them. But that's not the case with the Philippians letter. Um, much more of a, of a gentle nature there. 
when Paul writes to the Philippians, he says, I can't wait to get there. I can't wait to be a part of your ministry. To the Corinthians, if you remember, he said, get things in order, get things in order, or you're not going to like it when I get there. So you see just such a, a contrast in these letters based on the situation there. Well, why did Paul write the, the epistle to the Philippians? First, it was a thank you letter. The Philippians were very faithful to be involved in the ministry of, of Paul. And several times getting financially and in various other ways. And so it was a thank you letter. And secondly, Paul wrote to the Philippians about his own situation. He wanted them to know that even though he is in prison, he is okay. The gospel was being proclaimed in the prison. Paul was bound, but the gospel wasn't. So he wrote Philippians to let them know he's okay. And third, Paul wanted the Philippians to be aware of the false teaching that was going on. We're not sure exactly what it was. It could have been the Judaizers who said you had to be a Jew, become a Jew before becoming a Christian. Others think maybe it was some Gnostic, uh, Gnosticism from uh, Greece. But whatever it was, Paul wanted to clarify the gospel. He wanted to clarify the word. In a book of 104 verses, Jesus' name and title are mentioned 51 times. 51 times. That tells you a little bit about what was on Paul's heart, in his mind, and in his theology. Paul is in prison, as I said, probably in Rome, although others would say maybe Ephesus or other places, when he writes this, and yet he uses the term joy 16 times. His peace and his hope, his rest, were not based on his circumstances. I can't imagine what it's like for Paul to write such a warm, caring, encouraging letter while in prison. I'm reminded of a convicted murderer named Panchai Wilkinson. He was executed some years ago in Huntsville, Texas. He attempted to break out of, of uh, prison twice twice out of death row. He held a guard for 13 hours in one situation. And just prior to his execution, he refused his last meal. He refused to tell them what to do with his body. He refused to even leave the holding room where he was to go to the execution room. But in a last, like, in-your-face type thing, he leaned over as he was on the, the bed thing, and he spit out a key. And this key was a key that opened handcuffs and opened leg restraints. And it's almost like this bitter and angry man was getting his last satisfaction, leaving these officials to wonder how did he get the key, and how did he keep it a secret and hidden for all that time, bitter, angry, belligerent. Compare Paul to Mr. Wilkinson, and you see such a contrast. 
Such a refreshing contrast. Paul was in prison for preaching the word of God, for preaching Jesus Christ. He wrote to the Philippians during this time. Is he waiting for his own trial? He didn't look good. He was, in a sense, on death row. But far from being bitter words, the book of Philippians is so encouraging, so unbelievably warm and tender. It's a book written by Paul, a man who had no question that his mind was, in his mind, that his life was short. He didn't have a whole lot of time, and he wanted to leave these Philippians with words of encouragement. He wanted to instruct them in the Word. And throughout the book of Philippians, we're going to see this underlying theme of putting the gospel first. Putting the gospel first in your lives, in your relationships. Again, Paul couldn't visit the Philippians, but he could write. He could pray. Again, as he sensed his days being numbered, he wanted to encourage them. Well, we live in a culture that's so influenced by so many things that go contrary to God's word. Uh, secularism. I saw today in the paper the first monument uh, was put up in America today in Florida next to the Ten Commandments by atheist. Today we see in America a huge influence by secularization. There's a big influence of self-indulgence. You're first. You know, I'm, I'm important type thing. And in third, pluralism. There, there's no one way to God. And so we, as we face that, it's easy for us to want a more domesticated gospel, an American dream mixed in with a little bit of the gospel. It doesn't require as much. But Paul says in the gospel here, as he's talking to the Philippians, so very relevant for our lives, he says, put the gospel first. Put the gospel first in your lives. Today we're going to see that, as we look at these first three verses, I want to focus on verses 3 through 11. We're going to see first that Paul had the Philippians on his mind. On, on his mind. He thought about them. He remembered them. And secondly, Paul had the Philippians in his heart. They were very dear to him. And third, Paul had the Philippians in his prayers. It's easy for us to remember. Let's look at verses 3 through 6. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. I want you to notice up there that Paul must be a southerner because he said, you all. Okay? You all. Well, the New Living Translation says that Paul says, every time I think of you, I give thanks to God. Every time. Every time I think of you, I thank God. Paul thought of the Philippians, even though he was 
800 miles away. My family in Alabama are about 800 miles away. I think about them. I pray for them. I love them. In the same way, Paul had church family 800 miles away, and he loved them. They were on his mind. Well, what was it that gave, that gave Paul such pleasure when he thinks of the Philippians? I think first, Paul was joyful because of their partnership. The New American Standard says their participation. King James says their fellowship. But their partnership in the gospel from the first day to the present. When Paul gives thanks for their partnership, again, he's referring first to their common faith in Jesus Christ. They put the faith in Christ. But it's much more than that. That word partnership or participation is talking about the fact that these Philippians, they didn't sit by on the side. They gave to Paul and to his ministry. Received because of that, that there's a, there's a partnership. The thrust of Paul's joy was their partnership in spreading the gospel and proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior. They had something in common, yes, their faith, but they had the same concerns, proclaiming the gospel. I think maybe another reason that Paul was filled with joy as he thought about the Philippians he was assured that the Philippians would persevere in their faith, with or without him. Verse 6, I, I love, I still remember as a new Christian many, many years ago, my pastor pointing this out, For I am sure of this very thing, that the one who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That good work is your salvation, my salvation. Paul was confined here in, in a prison cell, accused by the Jews of treason, accused by some of his brethren of doing wrong. If he was found guilty, his days would be cut short. Would the church survive? Could this group of people manage to go on without him? The answer is a confident yes. Because, you see, first of all, this wasn't Paul's work. It was God's work. Secondly, it wasn't Paul's church. It was God's church. And third, it wasn't Paul that started this ministry. It was God. And so because of this, Paul had such confidence that they would persevere. You think back from the Macedonian vision at Troas where he was called there to the meeting with the women by the riverside to the miraculous conversion of the jailer. It's all, it's all God. It's all God. God finishes what he starts. Paul was confident of that. God initiated the salvation of these Philippians and the birth of the church security of the believers there rested in Paul, not, or rather, in God, not in Paul. So whatever Paul's fate might be, the church 
was solid. The church was stable because it was all God. It was God. We see the same confidence in God's work in our salvation uh, in the letter uh, to, to Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 1, we read, Paul says, He is the one, this is being God, He is the one who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not based on our works, but on His own purpose and grace, granted to us in Christ Jesus before time began but now made visible through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. He has broken the power of death and brought life and immortality to, uh, to light through the gospel. It, it kind of reminds me there of Ephesians, where it says we're called, we were adopted, we we're sealed. It's, it's God. God is at work, not based on our works, not based on our goodness or righteousness, but on God. In him alone. And Paul is confident not just in salvation and one persevering, but Paul, as he continues in the same passage in Second Timothy, he's confident about his ministry. He says, For this gospel I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. And because of this, in fact, I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, because I know the one in whom my faith is stacked. I am convinced that he is able to protect what has been entrusted to me until that day. We see again here, Paul was confident in his God. Confident in those who have truly put the faith and trust in Christ that they will persevere. Confident in ministry that whatever happens to him, the ministry that God had entrusted to him, these people to shepherd and to serve that God will protect because God cares for his own. What an encouragement this must have been to Paul whose future didn't look too bright. It was on this basis that he had such confidence and joy. Paul had the Philippians on his mind. He remembered them. He had fellowship with them. It centered around Jesus Christ and serving him. Are you using your spiritual gifts? Are you using your skills to serve the body here at Good News? Good News is always in need of helpers, whether it's in the nursery or in God's kids. The worship team always has need for vocalists and for musicians and for tech people. A wanna club needs helpers always. Aftershocks, I could keep going down the list. Church life. Are you using your gifts? You see, God saves us. He has a purpose and a plan. We're gifted. We're different gifts. We're also very different. And yet, God has called each of us. If we're in Christ, if we're a believer, he's called us. He's called us to himself. He's given us gifts and skills and abilities. He wants us to put the gospel first in our lives, in our relationships. Are you putting the gospel first in your relationships? You know, today, if we're saved... 
We're saved because someone loved us enough, they cared enough to share the gospel with us. Are you doing the same thing for those around you? Am I? Have you, like the Philippians, been involved in this fellowship and this partnership of the gospel from day one? Or have you grown tired? Have you stopped along the way? Paul had the Philippians on his mind. He remembered them continually. But we see in verses 7 and 8 that he had them in, their heart, in his heart. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. Is that you all again, guys? Because I hold you in my heart. For you all, for, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. How I yearn, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul had the Philippians in his heart. He loved him. He says he yearned. He yearned for them. He yearned to be with them. Again, when you look at other books to other churches, I think of the Corinthians again, of Galatians. It, it, it's like almost sometimes as Paul wrote the Corinthians, he was like a watchdog. Don't get me wrong, a watchdog is important. We have watchdogs because we, we want to protect our homes, right? They serve a purpose. But we see in, in, in Corinthians that, that Paul came across really strongly, sometimes very severely, but it's because he valued the gospel. He valued the gospel. But we see here with the Philippians, it comes across much more gentle. You see that affection for the Philippians. Not that he didn't love the others, but it's so clear that he had, he had the Philippians in his heart. Their deep love for him had grown through good times, but also through times of need, through adversity. I'm sure that they weren't perfect. I don't know of any Christian who is. But see, they put aside their differences to, in order to proclaim the gospel. They become co-partners with Paul, even in his imprisonment. Paul's imprisonment was not the reason. Um, rather, Paul's uh, imprisonment wasn't because of treason, but because of teaching the gospel. And, and, and these people at Philippi knew that. And they came alongside and supported him in defending the gospel. And there's that bond, and I think you all know it. There's that bond that's developed when you do things together. And I, I still remember, although it's been a couple of years, when I was in high school and I played football. There's that camaraderie that comes from being on a team together. There's that camaraderie when we, when it worked, we work on a project and we, and, 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 and we accomplish it. 
There's a bond. And these Philippians had that bond with Paul in the midst of life, in the midst of great sorrow, in the midst of adversity. And he loved them. He loved them for it. Putting the gospel first sometimes requires that we put aside differences so we, in turn, may be able to proclaim the gospel. Well, it's one thing to have people on our minds to remember them. It's even better for us to love them, to have them in our hearts. But we require it and we must pray for them. We'll see this in the next section in verses 9 through 11. Paul had the Philippians in his prayers. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and the praise of God. Let's look at some of these specifics in Paul's prayers. First, Paul prays that they would continue to grow in their faith. Again, Paul had assurance, we just saw in verse 6, he knew that Jesus Christ would complete the work in these believers. But he prays for them. He prays that they might grow in their faith, that they would continue to walk with God. He doesn't use the fact that he is assured that God will take them through to not pray for them. Isn't it easy for us to use God's sovereignty to not pray, to not share the gospel? We see, Paul never used God's sovereignty as an excuse. So first, Paul prays for their growth. Secondly, Paul prays that their love will grow more and more. They will abound more and more as they also grow in knowledge and discernment. Christian love must operate according to truth. We're told in Ephesians 4.15 that we're to practice the truth in love. We're to practice the truth in love. I'm sorry, but contrary to some movies, love is not blind. Love is not blind. As a matter of fact, true love has eyes wide open, wide open to how things really are and also to how things ought to be. Love acts wisely, makes discerning choices based on God's word. Love does not always do what the other person wants us to do. Love certainly does not do what our culture thinks we should do. Love always acts in such a way that is best for the person that we love. Love always has its eyes wide open. Well, third, Paul prays for a faultless and blameless life. Now, we know that there's no one who's ever lived on this earth other than Jesus Christ who's lived a totally faultless life or blameless life. 
But Paul is praying that, that, that in a strong sense that our lives might be blameless before those, that they see Christ in us. Paul wanted the Philippians to have this discerning love I mentioned earlier so they could make good choices. He wanted their hearts and their heads to work together. Let me say it again. He wanted their hearts and their heads to work together in order to make wife's choices. Paul wanted the Philippians to carefully examine their activities so they could choose the better, to choose the best over good. I think back, and I, and I know that we probably all remember, as we went through John and the investigating Jesus, remember Mary and Martha and Lazarus? They all loved Christ. If you remember, Martha sometimes kind of got upset. She served, she loved to serve Christ by working in the kitchen. And that's good. But sometimes she lost focus. Mary, on the other hand, sat at the feet of Christ. Mary made the better choice. So Paul prays for the Philippians, and I think for us, in the same sense that we're to grow in our faith, and our love should bound more and more as we walk with God, and, and as we're growing in our love, there should be discernment and knowledge of God's Word and knowledge of who God is. And in turn, we make wise choices, choices that lead to lives that are blameless before our Lord. Paul's prayers truly reveal a, a heavenly perspective. His prayers are that the Philippians' lives might be found pleasing to Christ in the end. And, and isn't that all that what we all want? That in the end, in the end, when we breathe our last breath, we can look back we can say that we lived for eternity. We lived to proclaim the gospel, to live out the gospel. Paul is like the father of the bride who wants to present the bride to her groom in purity and perfection. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. Because I promised you in marriage to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. You see, Paul was jealous for the Philippians there. He wanted them to grow up in Christ and to be blameless. So in turn that he could present them to Christ at the end. Paul desires that the Philippians would bear fruit of Christ-likeness. I don't know your lives, but I know that each of us, because we're humans, there are times in our lives when our thoughts aren't Christ-like. There are times in our lives when our responses aren't Christ-like. Yet, it's God's desire that more and more our thinking, our attitude, our actions 
would more and more be like Christ. And, and, and when we're more like Christ, we will then bring glory to God. Again, that's the ultimate goal of the Christian, isn't it? That God will be glorified through our lives. Again, as I was preparing this past week and before, it really hit me. This passage is tough. If we seek to live out God's word, boy, again, I was convicted. I see where I missed the mark way too often. Let's take this passage now and apply it to our lives. How do we do that? First, like Paul, we need to number our days. Paul was in prison. But even in prison, he took the time to write and to, to pray for these Philippians and others too. And we need to do the same thing. We need to have that same incentive to be numbering our days, knowing that life is short. I'm always reminded, James 4, I believe it is, talks about life being like a mist. It's here today and then it's gone. Life is short. Do you and do I put the gospel first in our relationships? Think about it. Our lost loved ones, whether they are neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, our family, they're rushing recklessly toward destruction apart from Christ. Do you and I, do we recognize this? Are we sharing the gospel? Are we living lives in such a way that people are drawn first to Christ? First, then, let's number our days. Secondly, Paul didn't attempt to use God's sovereignty as an excuse to not be praying. Again, he, he knew that God was in control. Yet he sought to pray. We should use God's sovereignty as the incentive, the motive to be praying is rather, as opposed to an excuse for being passive. So first, number of days. Two, don't use God's sovereignty as an excuse, but use it as a reason to minister, to work, to pray for the Lord. Third, this passage reminds us that we don't have to be somewhere Physically, to minister. Again, Paul was 800 miles away. Each of us have family and friends that are scattered out all over the United States, all over the world. We are very capable and able to minister to these people. He persistently prayed and he wrote to these people. Think about Paul if he were here today. Paul didn't have cell phones. And we can't live without cell phones. He could not text a message. He couldn't email anyone. He couldn't even use snail mail. But he cared. Even though he was 800 miles away, 
He was involved in ministering and praying for them. We too can do the same. Well, fourth, we can learn much about Paul's joy. What was it? Rather, we can learn much from it. What was it that gave Paul such joy, such pleasure? It was the Philippians themselves. It was the body of Christ. It was the saints that had come to Christ there. Paul's joy wasn't in receiving gifts for his ministry, although he needed them. He was thankful for them. His joy wasn't in a comfortable life. He was in prison. Too often, again, it's easy for us as Americans to pursue the American dream and fail to be committed to proclaiming the gospel, to putting the gospel first. Paul's joy was in having a part of the salvation and growth of these people. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through 19, we read, Paul is speaking here, But when we were separated from you, brothers and sisters, for a short time, in presence, not in affection, we became all the more fervent in our great desire to see you in person. For we wanted to come to you, and I, Paul, in fact, tried again and again. But Satan thwarted us. For who is our hope, or joy, or crown, to boast of before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not, of course, you? For you are our glory and joy. Again, Paul's joy and his reward were the people that he ministered to and with. Those who he had led to Christ. Those whom he saw grow in their faith. Or people who are part of our ministry. Is that our pride and joy? When we get to heaven, will, will people who have been ministered to, who have come to Christ and grown because of our ministry, will, will that be the crown and glory that we have? I have to ask myself, what is it that really brings me joy? Is it my own self-centered joy? Or is it people-centered do I take joy in serving others even when it requires sacrifice? What gives me the greatest pleasure says a whole lot about me, doesn't it? And about you. Paul found pleasure in giving his life, ministering to people, sharing the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. We can learn so much from Paul, from his life, from his prayers. If we're honest, when we look at his prayers, many of us will confess the need to change. We'll confess that our prayers don't even begin to measure up to Paul's. Paul's prayers were, they have such a fervency a frequency, a, a focus, 
on the gospel. It's easy for us to pray regarding other things. Paul, throughout his life, put the gospel first. And the question for you and for me is, are we putting the gospel first in our lives? Let's pray.